Hello everyone, and welcome to AI Unleashed, Beyond the Code podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Before we dive into today's topic, I want to encourage you to hit that subscribe button. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode of our everyday podcast, filled with insightful discussions, fascinating interviews, and so much more. Now, let's get something straight from the start. Today, we won't be talking about AI. Nope, not at all. We're taking a break from the technical jargon and exploring intriguing topics that go beyond the code. So whether you're an AI enthusiast looking for a change of pace or someone curious about the world beyond the digital realm, this podcast is for you. Get ready for captivating conversations, thought-provoking insights, and a whole lot of fun. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. But first, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can join us every day on this exciting podcast journey. Now, let's get started. Today we are talking about unveiling the chilling legacy, saw the complete history of Jigsaw Horror History. If you want to see an online chronology of John Kramer's life events, make it to the credits. In many of my favorite horror films, the antagonists are not monsters in the traditional meaning of the word, in that they do not have a frightening physical appearance or imposing personality. Terror, which is often the result of a warped perception of the world. Scary to me is the sincerity with which many of the best antagonists or anti-heroes act. Believing they are helping humanity by committing evil acts, the driving force behind what has become known as the Saw films is a prime illustration of this disturbing mindset. Hello, my name is Very Confused and I'm a horror historian. I'm ing confused about my own name, what's yours? The guy who sparked years of citywide hysteria, dozens of impersonators, a cult of evil followers, and a large federal investigation is the subject of today's lesson. And, most importantly, at least 57 people lost their lives. To clarify, when I say the Jigsaw Killer, I mean John Kramer, better known by his moniker. The name Jigsaw comes from the fact that he used to carve the name Jigsaw into the flesh of his unsuccessful victims to represent the part of their survival instinct that he had taken from them. In this video, we'll examine Jigsaw's entire existence in an effort to put those pieces together, as is the case with any puzzle, it's better to begin by identifying and understanding the surrounding components. Parts that make up the whole, like John Kramer's history. We will also investigate his mysterious upbringing, how his psychopathy evolved, how he was forced to adopt a god complex through the religious allegories in his writing, and more. And the dawning consciousness of his eventual futility. Let's break down John Kramer like a jigsaw puzzle to see how the pieces fit together. Back to the day he was born. Before we met John Kramer. Based on the information provided about John Kramer's age when he passed away, we can infer that he was born in 1954. John Kramer is the name of the subject. A Caucasian male who is 52 years old. He was only in his early 50s when he starred in the Saw films. Yikes. A big fat yikes. It's as if everything about it is priceless. The Urban Renewal Group, which John created, was John's place of employment. Nevertheless, this had little to do with hip-hop in the middle of the 2000s. John, a civil engineer, collaborated with a lawyer named Art Blank to construct affordable housing. 
low-income households, and they occasionally constructed other structures with the same altruistic goal. John was exceptionally bright, which made him a brilliant engineer on the global stage. At reading people and predicting their behavior, which served him well in business. Rapidly rising through the ranks of Urban Renewal Group, he is now the proud owner of multiple properties around the city and had access to substantial resources, which he used to aid the locals. Knowing that he was driven by a desire to make the world a better place for others is the starting point for understanding his motivation. Maybe that's what drew him to Jill Tuck, the doctor who ran a drug rehab in town where they would eventually meet and start a family. The Homeward Bound Medical Center John came to identify the slogan Cherish Your Life with the clinic where he worked. John and Jill fell in love, got engaged, and are now planning to start a family. John, just as he did in his career, carefully planned every detail of his life, including the arrival of his new baby. Exception Gideon, which may have been taken from the Hebrew name Gideon, which meant hero or judge, was also the name of his first structure, the Gideon Meatpacking Plant. John's hidden bias toward passing moral judgment. The due date was set for 1995, the Chinese year of the pig. John put a lot of stock in the idea of rebirth, thus this image resonated with him. In John's narrative, both Gideon and the pig would come to have more significant roles. Later on, he had to take care of his pregnant wife first. On occasion, he waited for her to finish work, and during those times he saw some dubious types who were seen as clinic patients. A fight almost breaks out between two addicts named and he had to step in one night. John must talk sense into Cecil Adams about putting down the knife before things grow worse between him and Gus Colliard. This makes John doubt the efficacy of his wife's rehabilitation strategies, yet he continues to support her efforts despite his doubts. When he meets William Easton, an insurance tycoon who hosts a party at Jill's clinic, he shows signs of having become more cynical about the world. They share a need to predict human behavior, which seems to bond them, but John disagrees with William's ways of screening people and determining their motivations. Insurance companies must assess a person's health risk before they give them coverage. But you're ignoring the single most crucial aspect of humanity. Which one is it? This conversation would become an integral part of Jigsaw's character development, since Jigsaw's response was, the will to live. Because John thought that by putting his victims through hardship, he was giving them a fighting chance. John didn't stop getting ready for the birth of Gideon even as his due date drew closer. His son by making a home movie for him during an ultrasound, as well as a crib and a children's toy that resembled a ventriloquist doll that he named Billy the Puppet. Monitoring John's planning for fatherhood provides us with more clues. He planned to record video messages that he would give to his son. Jigsaw, an avatar that appeared in some of the videos, would use this medium to communicate with his test subjects, and the puppet would be recast as Jigsaw's visage. Would materialize occasionally to deliver messages to his victims. Billy the puppet laughs and says, No, that's not creepy at all. Sadly, tragedy would strike one night long before John could meet his son Gideon. Jigsaw's Early Days While his pregnant wife closed the clinic one night in late 1994, 
John was warming up the car and saw a distraught Cecil Adams rush out. He rushes inside after sensing trouble and discovers Jill unconscious on the floor, having been struck by the opening door as Cecil entered. He is worried about Jill and the baby's health, as she is seven months along in her pregnancy. John has a rough evening emotionally, while Jill is in disbelief after physicians give them bad news. The infant could not be saved. From here on out, John's life starts to go downhill, or spiral, toward his certain demise. I'm talking about a psychopath here. After Gideon's death, we see the first signs of a psychotic personality trait, a lack of empathy for victims or remorse for actions, in the protagonist. John no longer supports the idea of aiding drug addicts, despite his past support for the concept. When I heard you can't help them, all I could think was, all I wanted to do was help them. One of the three main recognized causes of psychopathy is traumatic experiences, therefore helping them is ultimately up to them. The tragic death of John's son, to whom he had devoted so much of his life, served as a turning point. Even though a gravestone isn't typically used to commemorate a miscarriage, we can see how much he cared for Gideon by the fact that he buried him. His absence frightened even his closest friends and family members, including his wife and business partner. When they finally assembled to face him, they discovered him dozing off in a chair in his workshop. In Gideon Packing, we pack meat. He treats them coldly and shows no interest in getting his life back to normal. Art suggests he focus his anger into their urban renewal project, where his plans may have benefited low-income households, but instead he gives up his ownership stake in the venture. In the business to Jill, and orders them to leave the premises furiously. At this point in his life, he had done a lot of things, but nothing had been enough. In his gloomy state of mind, he forced himself to come up with a plan to deal with drug addicts like Cecil so that he could protect his family from the addict's unpredictable criminal behavior. It was his only method of dealing with his grief at the time. For both his professional and personal life, he was a strong proponent of the they-have-to-help-themselves philosophy. In sanity, he decided that his son's murderer should be the first person he extended a second chance to. He finds Cecil at a Chinese New Year party, which, knowing John, is where Cecil would be. Was probably when Gideon was supposed to be born. As it was the year of the pig, he decides to disguise himself by stealing a pig mask. I'm relieved he went with a more sinister look later on, since I think I could have lost it if I saw my kidnapper wearing this. Will you do? Make me a daytime TV celebrity for kids if you must. That is a terrifying prospect. The pig's symbolic significance in the Chinese zodiac as a second chance at life also explains why he chose to hide behind the mask. Transform into new and improved selves. After being chloroformed, Cecil wakes up in John's garage. And I quote, you did this to me. To which Cecil replies, no, you did this to yourself. It was your doing. This is all on you, bro. Believe it or not, he's actually delusional. Cecil can't escape the knife chair's grasp. John says he can take his life back with this. To free himself, he must press a lever on the other side of a barrier of eight knives with his face. If Cecil's visage is as ugly as his soul, John reasons, then so be it. Although Cecil manages to free himself from the chair, 
this is insufficient for his rehabilitation. Him. John avoids his attack and the man falls into the razor wire trap, from which he cannot free himself. John may have convinced himself that killing Cecil was justified because he had already given him a second chance and he had failed to change his ways. A psychopath also has a high demand for stimulation. John quickly had Cecil go through the test because he saw it as a favor. In his studio, he started making more intricate traps in an effort to help more people. Despite his best efforts, John could not guarantee that future traps would be equitable or fair. Kramer's crimes would be immediately identified as the work of a serial killer by the authorities. Newspapers began to refer to him as the Jigsaw Killer, as Gordon explains. After losing the baby she was carrying, Jill wanted to talk to John and give their marriage another shot in the hopes that they could turn things around. The workshop yet again. She finds some of Cecil Adams' reconnaissance images before she ever reunites with her husband. Jill suspected that John may have had something to do with Cecil's disappearance. When he catches her nosing around, he explodes with anger and tells her to go, essentially ending their relationship and displaying further psychopathic tendencies. Impulsivity. It wouldn't be long until they split up. As soon as Jill leaves, he returns to his glass coffin trap. A person could utilize this container to be rescued from a crumbling room. John wouldn't have enough time to benefit from this in his own life. Instead, it was employed by his successor years later, but the fact that John was working on it in the 1990s shows his brilliance and foresight. A deadly serial killer because of his ability to anticipate a wide range of events. John knew that despite his remarkable mind, his body was ready to fail him. Divorced soon after learning they had colon cancer. Rebirth. This was the second tragedy in a row for John, following his divorce. When he was already down and out, cancer came along and finished him out. He made the choice to kill himself. He does it in classic Groundhog Day fashion by deliberately driving off a cliff, nevertheless, his automobile miraculously survives. In spite of the disaster, he managed to escape. As he lies in the ashes, he decides he wants to survive and that he must find a way to stop the fire. Hence, in order to free himself, he must suffer a little more by extracting a share. For John, this was eye-opening for more than just the fact that he saw firsthand how. Difficult. It was speculated that the strength of his own will to survive had healed his mind and given him a newfound respect of life but it was also possible that this strength of will had directly inspired him to develop the spike trap. That would be utilized later and have the victim remove metal stakes from herself to free herself, and the horsepower trap, where the victim is subjected to what amounts to a vehicle crash in order to free herself. Crash. Mean girl, huge crash hears. The motherf don't stop, keep going. He may have understood that the pain issue would not prevent him from using the rehabilitation procedure he had tried on Cecil after surviving his own self-inflicted automobile crash. Must be heightened because effective traps will put human nature itself to the test. While being treated at Angel of Mercy Hospital, where he was ultimately dissatisfied with the friendliness of practically everyone working there, he began working on some new traps and filed them away in his memory as potential rehabilitation clients. Most of the folks John met were simply going about their day, but
but. He was growing increasingly frustrated by the disasters in his life, and as a result, he was looking too hard for victims to punish by assigning false motives. John's colon cancer was treated with chemotherapy for the following five to seven years, during which time he became more aware of his surroundings. He wanted to meet the other people he thought were wasting their lives in preparation for a test game he was designing. In his mind, a game was a set of interconnected traps designed to add a social experiment dimension to his proprietary healing method. It wasn't patented, but that's fine. To be completely honest, I just thought the word sounded excellent in that context. He had wanted to accomplish more with his time than run a series of tests on random people till. His allotted time had run out on Earth. Instead, he aimed to make a permanent shift in society that would have far-reaching effects. After his death by continuing to play his games and having a surviving character recount the ordeal. People would be less likely to repeat their mistakes after hearing about the tragedies they had to through. John had the idea to make a single act of ostensible vigilante justice into a movement, but he quickly realized its potential was far greater than that. For this reason, he decided to hold his first game in secret, in a faraway location, an abandoned pig farm still held by his wife's family. Given his conception of the pig as a symbol of rebirth, he was convinced that this was the best option. People close to him at the time made up some of the test subjects for this game. The focus of the first game was not on scoring as much as it had been in the others. The victims to accept responsibility for their actions. The later games focused more on physically punishing the offenders, as is customary in such situations. A metaphor for the harm that they've done. The barn game would have a total of five participants. Ryan, whose carelessness caused the deaths of his high school buddies, Carly, whose naivete contributed to the tragedy. A burglar who set off her victim's asthma attack, Mitch, who sold a defective motorcycle that killed John's nephew, Anna, who lived next door to John and was arrested for burglary. Generally very encouraging to him while he undergoes chemotherapy, but also the woman who murdered her baby and framed her husband for the crime. Hospital staff mixed up John's scan labels with those of another patient, delaying the identification of a brain tumor. Because of this, he didn't get an accurate diagnosis until 2003, long after it was too late to help. Doctor Lawrence Gordon and Dr. Lynn Denlon, the doctors working on his case, were unfeeling and uncaring. John was not pleased with the manor doctor. Gordon broke the news that he had just a short time to live throughout his therapy. While he had acquired enough information to possibly put the two doctors through their paces in future games. Enough participants for John Kramer's first experiment, so he gathered them up, brought them to the Tuck Pig Farm, and the game began. Jigsaw, if you try to play by any other set of rules, I will murder you. When the game begins, John watches the rooms via surveillance cameras to keep tabs on how far forward each participant is. I imagine that technology was employed in this pilot to simulate his presence at future events, where the rules of each game would be strictly enforced. Game because two players, Anna and Logan, were familiar with the name John Kramer. Hello, Anna. John? Players are instructed to perform a blood sacrifice after waking up with a bucket on their head. 
However, Logan wasn't as fortunate as the others because he didn't awake at the same moment. This is something that John is aware of, and he concludes that it would be wrong for Logan to perish. Had made a minor miscalculation, so he pulled the plug on the whirring saws and rescued him. Logan's back was severely lacerated, but with John's assistance, he was able to make a full recovery. So that he can get them sutured and live. The rest of the game proceeds according to plan, with the final outcome being the elimination of all but two players. Anna and Ryan are all that's left. John re-enters the game this time donning the revised pig mask. Sleeps them off. Once they are out, he takes them to the slaughter room in the other section of the barn. You may be wondering, why is it called that? There is a good explanation. And another one is set to happen. Ryan and Anna are separated by a locked door as John appears to explain the terms of the final challenge. Jigsaw, the best ones are as easy as the game is now. He doesn't say it outright, but they only have one shotgun and one shell, and the gun is set up sideways. The goal of this game has always been for them to achieve peace within themselves. While I am sure there is a tendency to point fingers at me for the blood that has been. However, I guarantee you that more blood will be lost unless you bend that finger inward. Jigsaw, now if you want to obtain your freedom, you have to learn. When Anna disregards these hints and tries to murder Ryan, he says, you have to realize that you've been doing it backwards. She shoots herself in the head with the gun, but the key to unlocking the door is still within the spent shell. Anna discharges the gun, destroying it along with Ryan's hope of escape. At this point, only Logan Nelson remains from the test game, and he has a better chance of escaping than anybody else. Participate in shaping the next jigsaw puzzle piece. Jigsaw Faithful Let's rewind to the first time John Kramer appears in a game and see what he's wearing when he comes out to talk to Ryan and Anna, a hooded robe. The robes make him look almost religious, like a monk or priest, which is a stretch given that we're at a pig farm and not a temple. The religious underpinnings of John's message, which has been a source of consternation for some. Acting as he would like them to based on the warnings of the survivors, but he also desired to establish his own cult, a group of followers who would carry on his legacy. For his ideas to have lasting impact, he needed to develop something that could carry on his legacy after he was gone. Motivate this kind of action in the next generation, he could only hope that his followers would carry on his legacy. My parting words changed a world. The first step was to dress the part of a religious leader, and in doing so, he began to believe in his own divinity. An unshakable conviction typified by chronically inflated emotions of personal ability, privilege, or superiority, a god complex was defined in the horror history episode on Mark Hoffman. John's religious garb was a symbolic final step toward his firm conviction that he was a divine being who could do no wrong. God and Jigsaw's actions are textbook examples of a god complex, as defined by psychologist and author Harold Kaplan. One who has a god complex may be unable to accept the possibility of error or failure, no matter how overwhelming the evidence or difficult the circumstances. Look no farther than John's prior trap with Cecil Adams to see why he thinks the knife chair will instantaneously reform Cecil. But he wasn't, and he continued trying to assault John even after he escaped. 
Despite witnessing this failure, though, John still insists on using the same tactics. Cecil's last name, Adams, may not be coincidental given his aspirations to invent new traps. Like Adam in the biblical account of Adam and Eve, Cecil is John's first victim to pay the price for his transgression, just as Adam takes the forbidden fruit that leads to their expulsion from the garden. Eden's fabled backyard, I don't know how I have to say this but I just have to say this so that. I hope that no one else makes the same mistake I did and is permanently banned as I did. A person highly dogmatic in their views, that is, someone who expresses their own opinions as though they were inarguable facts, is another sign of a God complex. The way John speaks to his victims, in a booming godlike voice, as if his judgments of them are entirely irrefutable, is absolutely spot on. You doubtless reject responsibility for the predicament you find yourselves in. If you rid yourselves of the lies that have become routine in your lives, salvation is within your reach. Here, and he addresses his victims with phrases taken from holy books. Finally, Someone with a God complex may show no regard for the conventions and demands of society and demand extraordinary treatment or unique privileges. Even though it's evident that John's methods are illegal, he plans to hold more games in public view soon. As he sees himself as morally righteous, he disregards the norms of our society. Officer Rigg, get his ass out of here. Jigsaw, actually, I will need to remain here while you deal with your problem, Detective Matthews. John is a classic case of a God complex because a religion needs both a leader and followers to thrive, but he already had the former. First one he takes Logan Nelson under his wing and teaches him the ways of Jigsaw after Logan saves him from the barn game. Many faiths use texts or commandments to instill a moral code upon their followers, and he outlines the fundamental notions around which he operates. The principal means by which John Kramer imparts his teachings is through the rules of Jigsaw's games, which are essentially religious writings articulated in the form of audio tapes. When a website is created to continue spreading John's word long after he has passed away, his teachings will join the ranks of the world's oldest religious texts, many of which stretch back thousands of years or more. As Detective Hunt put it, a Logan, you ever heard of a website called Jigsaw Rules? Detective Halloran chimed in, it's a site devoted to Jigsaw. In the cult of Jigsaw, as in the rest of the Saw films, the traps play a pivotal role. Religions typically include figurative conceptions of guilt and retribution, such as heaven and hell, karma, and reincarnation. John's faith is a hybrid of these two concepts, he believes that people deserve to suffer because of their sins and that being caught in a trap is God's way of punishing them, yet he also. He sees the pain his victims endure as redemptive, and this is what brings us full circle to Logan Nelson, the man who would become Jigsaw's first follower. John instilled in Jigsaw his values and some of his mechanical engineering expertise, together they developed Jigsaw's distinctive trap, the reverse bear trap. Unfortunately for John, the relationship wouldn't last long because Nelson had to leave to serve in the war, forcing him to hunt elsewhere for new converts. While he is still trying to beat the cancer, he meets someone he thinks has what it takes to become a disciple. John finds a doctor in Norway who has been using an experimental therapy involving when he does some of his own research on alternative remedies. He visits William Easton, CEO of Umbrella Health, whose success rate is between 30 and 40 percent. 
William provides the man who sponsored the party at Jill's clinic a copy and paste when he explains the issue and asks for coverage. Reply that if the treatment were effective, John's doctor would already be using it, that John's insurance wouldn't cover it, and that John would have to pay out of pocket for it. John's response is one of my favorites, and one I make sure to use whenever I get the chance, he'll be dropped from his current coverage. Whenever I need medical attention and the front desk clerk says something like, OK CZS World, that's $50,000, I put on my best John Kramer impression and respond, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's peanuts. I told her, you assume it's the living that will have ultimate judgment over you, yet in the Far East, people pay their doctors while they're healthy. No, but I believe John reacts the way he does to Mr. Easton not out of any personal animosity but rather to make a point about the healthcare system. He had the resources to try various treatments, but I get the impression that he wanted his life's work to have an impact on the world before he passed on. That a religious figurehead would do later that year, his health deteriorated again, and it was time to put an end to his life. Iconic Jigsaw was about to be introduced to the general public for the first time. Up and coming followers. John was diagnosed with an inoperable frontal lobe tumor by Dr. Lawrence Gordon in June of 2003. In other words, he had an extremely aggressive form of brain cancer known as glioblastoma multiforme, GBM, of the left temporal lobe. To eliminate the cancer cells, he was treated with chemotherapy, and the tumor was subjected to external beam radiation therapy. On March 24, 2004, nine months later, John was diagnosed with increasing aphasia and right-sided hemiplegia. That suggests the disease in his brain was preventing him from speaking and restricting the use of his right side. Look, even the science classes on horror history are informative, it's not all about memes. The laughs and heart-opening music rise as we say, wait till you see the Music builds to a crescendo as a chorus of voices exclaim, oh no, no, no. Music that opens the chest and laughter that builds an explosion of squealing laughter. Okay, alright, but my point is that not everything is a meme. After re-examining John, doctors Gordon and Denlon found a tumor on his temporal left side. Lobe, resulting in a squeezing of his brainstem. Furthermore, the cancer was metastatic, suggesting that it had spread to other regions of the brain. Or maybe other organs or tissues. Additional imaging revealed necrosis in his brain, suggesting that some of his brain cells were dying off. Result of radiation therapy designed to destroy cancer cells, but which can also harm healthy tissue. He also had edema, which meant his brain was swelling inside his skull, necessitating a craniotomy which is a type of brain surgery in which a surgical opening is made in the skull. Opening up in the top of his head. So, Yalad got sick, and Dr. Denlon told him, there's no preventative measure you can take, in case you were dozing off through all that medical gibberish. Professional tone, you need treatment for what you have. That was something John didn't particularly value. Doctor. Denlin's lack of empathy was only one of many things he filed away in his mind to use against her in the event that the tumor returned. Future subject of a test. However, doctors. Gordon and Denlon were successful in alleviating his symptoms to the point where he could go home and make the most of his remaining time. Home.
there were other ways he planned to spend his time. And yet, despite the fact that this is where the public would expect to see his first victims, films have extensively depicted the time period between March 2004 and October 2004. But generally speaking, what we do know is that at least three or so traps were held, in which no survivors were found. Seth Baxter's death in the pendulum trap, which was rigged by Detective Mark Hoffman to make it look like he committed himself, leads me to believe this to be the case. Jigsaw's victims included others like Seth. To explain this copycat crime, however, additional similar crimes must have occurred. These jigsaw traps were initially uncovered by the general public. Despite the fact that their names do not appear in this jigsaw's victims in Saw 5 list. Perhaps there is a second page we haven't seen yet, or perhaps they were all so terribly disfigured that identification was impossible. No, because the people behind this franchise are just like the rest of us and made a mistake. Several traditions are established in these first three high-profile cases, including the use of concept that John is present at the site of each test, the presence of a pre-recorded tape in which Billy the puppet reads the rules of each trap allowed to the victim, and the each person's flesh is removed like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Because of this, the media and law enforcement began referring to John as Jigsaw, nicknamed the Jigsaw Murderer, etc. The police and the media came up with the moniker Jigsaw, but I'm John, and I thought you liked it. Neither did I ever suggest or assert that. My original intention for each subject's Jigsaw fragment was to serve solely as a symbol. Mark Hoffman incorporated them into his knockoff Jigsaw trap, but John had been maintaining. So he knew right away, and he put Hoffman through his paces in a rudimentary trap known as the shotgun chair, which impeded his ability to use his arms for testing purposes. Unless he was planning to blow his own head off, that is. Because Hoffman didn't give his patient a second chance, he is being put to the test. A chance should be given to everyone. And here's your opportunity. And here's your opportunity. John has come to the conclusion that he and Hoffman are a. Intents are not wildly different from one another. They share a common goal of establishing order in the city, but John is confident that his approach is superior. In light of his self-perceived divinity. This prompts him to recruit Hoffman as his next student. John uses the fear of his learning the truth about Hoffman being Seth Baxter's. The murderer will be released from prison automatically if he is killed. John hopes that by having Hoffman work for him, Hoffman will finally see the light. Mild, she gradually comes to accept John's strategies. John brings Hoffman along as he prepares the next stage of the transition. There are two catches here. A man named Paul Leahy is double-teamed by the two of them, and then abandoned in the trap of the razor wire maze. John had met Paul, a recovering addict who had turned to self-injury to support his habit, in Jill's clinic. The maze appears to be a revamped version of Cecil's second trap, and finding his way out was essential for Paul. To squeeze through, requiring him to reopen his wounds. Jigsaw, the tragedy is that if you wish to perish, you need do nothing more than remain where you are. The intention was that a more severe penalty would teach Paul to value the life he had but if he wanted to keep living, he would have to slash himself again. Yet all was in vain once again, as Paul did not make it.
Hoffman investigated the incident, but the deputy coroner ruled the death a suicide. When Allison Carey joined the police force, she brought in two new detectives, Stephen Singh and David Tapp. From here on forward, Jigsaw would be keeping tabs on them in preparation for his eventual decision to make them his victims. A reasonable case could have been made before this that everyone he had tested. Even. They were awful individuals if you don't want to claim they deserved it. Except for Nelson, who never actually got tested. However, Jigsaw only puts Singh and Tap on his bad list because they are trying to bring Nelson and his gang down. Justice for a serial killer. This is John's psychopathic tendencies and God complex coming to the fore and distorting his perspective. What he thinks is really going on. Due to his mental instability and paranoia, he constantly makes up excuses to harm Sing and Tap. That there is no way to stop him. The honor of capturing Jigsaw, he told himself, was more important than the safety of the people, so they deserve to be put to the test. However, this was only a pretext for him to attack his opponents. God Complex taught him no one should challenge his authority, but psychopathy prompted him to go ahead and try. Him that he was acting morally by subjecting them to such rigorous examinations. John relocated his business to Stygian Street, to a former mannequin manufacturer. There, he would lay a trap for Sing and Tap that would result in their deaths if they attempted to stop the development of his next major game, the bathroom game. To challenge or halt him. In order to draw the two police officers into his turf, he films the video recordings he plays for his victims in front of recognizable graffiti. Weeks, maybe. Meanwhile, he needed to conduct tests on another issue and turned again to Hoffman for assistance. Mark Wilson was the identity of the deceased. John suspected Mark of playing sick to con money out of unsuspecting victims, so he put him through the flammable jelly trap. Mark had to use a candle to decipher the wall writings in order to unlock a safe carrying an antidote. The ground was littered with broken glass, and the flammable fluid that covered his body threatened to catch fire at any moment. That. So it's no surprise that this deadly trap is known as the flammable jelly spit. Hoffman, having laid this trap, tries to forewarn John that tap is onto him, but John, having fallen into Hoffman's trap, he, being the manipulative genius that he is, is one step ahead of him. John takes Dr. Gordon's penlight during one of John's treatments at Angel of Mercy Hospital and gives it to Hoffman with a note telling him to leave. Leave it at the flammable jelly trap crime scene to confuse the police. The strategy was successful, and it offered John some breathing room before setting his next trap, which involved two more ex-homeward-bound clinic patients. This ambush was scheduled for May of 2004, which was five months before the occurrences of the toilet game. Five months have passed, Gordon said. Amanda Young and Donnie Greco, two addicts, played a major role. This is just another instance of Jigsaw being convinced that his opinions are absolute truths while, in fact, he creates an unjust situation. Amanda is given instructions to remove the key from her dead cellmate's stomach. Gotta get rid of the bear trap so it doesn't rip her head off when she walks into it. When she finally gets started though, she realizes that Donnie is only asleep and not dead. Has to kill him in order to obtain the key. 
John has already disregarded his own rules before the first movie has even begun. Especially if they are yelled very loudly. A chance should be given to everyone. It's possible that Donnie has already seen my Saw episode of Things You Missed. Had a redo in a trap he'd set off-screen, but what's really going on is that Jigsaw is getting a little sloppy with his savagery after that those kills. Victimized before. The need for constant stimulation is another characteristic of psychopaths. Despite his zeal for punishing addicts, this actually makes him no better than them. Due to the fact that they are drug addicts and he is practically addicted to setting traps for others. He's decided to be his own judge, juror, and executioner, and he's enjoying the responsibility. That it affords him. The fact that he is extremely bright and realizes that he must be covert in his actions makes the situation even more precarious. Jigsaw has developed into a full-fledged monster at this stage. When Amanda releases the bear trap by turning her head around, Billy the puppet rolls out. On a tricycle, and he's quite proud of her. The voice of Jigsaw says, Congratulations. You have not yet died. People are generally quite ungrateful. Except you. John now waits for her in her apartment and reassures her that she has nothing to be afraid of. Her story is only beginning. His next student would be Amanda. She was the first person to make it through a game and think that it had been beneficial to them. Overcome adversity and thought her drug-using days were over because of the newfound value she placed on her life. John recognized that she had the ability to carry on his work, so he started collaborating with her more closely on his next game. To help her develop her abilities and catch up to Hoffman. Mid to late May, roughly two weeks later, is when John thinks Sing and Tap will make their discovery. Construction of his workshop. He might have known this because of his extraordinary prescience, but he might also have had a helping hand from Hoffman, who was still on the force at the time. Watching over Tap's shoulder to let John know when the approaching threat was serious. To protect himself, he begins carrying around a bulletproof vest beneath his robes and resorts to kidnapping. Mr. Jeff Ridenauer, if you will. No one ever finds Jigsaw's video, so we'll never know why he wanted to put Jeff through a test. According to the non-canon video game Saw 2, Flesh and Blood, however, John did not value his life because Jeff had tried suicide. He puts Jeff in a trap he calls the drill chair and watches for Sing and Tap to discover him. When he returns to his workshop one day, he finds signs of recent activity. Sets themselves up for an argument. After stepping on a switch on the floor, he reveals that 20 seconds will pass before Jeff is killed by the drill chair if the detectives don't find the key. That leaves them with a stark choice, either save his life or catch Jigsaw. Another time he has broken his own rules for his own profit. Jeff isn't being given a second opportunity unless we somehow miss him failing his first test. A chance should be given to everyone. He also says he has an extreme aversion to killing. Murder is horrible. If you wake up your parents the sleepover is finished. Okay, chill out buddy. However, the fact that John pulls the trigger on a machine meant to drill through Jeff's brain is the same as him pressing the trigger on a gun. I've never committed a homicide in my entire life. From what we can learn, 
Jeff was never given the opportunity to flee like many of the others. John would consider it unfair if it were done by someone else. However, since Sing and Tap are hunting him and he considers himself divine, he will not back down. Throw out any restrictions that are holding them back. One fictional character with a god complex that stands out to me is Light Yagami from Death Note. He experienced something very similar. At first, he solely targets criminals, but later, he seeks to eliminate L, a detective. Uses legal means to try to convict him. Jigsaw is gauging the two police officers' commitment to save Jeff by seeing if they attempt to kidnap him. Jigsaw. Tap rushes for John, fails the exam, and has his neck sliced as Singh concentrates on freeing the victim. Then Singh repeats his earlier error and chases after John, perhaps fearing that his efforts will have been in vain. John, however, who was usually ready for everything, was also ready for this. Down the stairs and into the corridor where Singh has set up the quadruple gun trap he is pursued by Singh. Just pull the trigger on the fishing line and the guns in the ceiling will fire. To take your life. After John successfully jumps the fence, Singh shoots him with his own weapon. John takes the bullet in his bulletproof vest, but he knows to keep there and wait for help. Singh came close, tripped the wire, and died, game. Over. Ha 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 Then got up and ran out of the garage for good. I suppose one of the reasons he was confident in his ability to carry this off was that he was already so fragile from the cancer treatment that being knocked to the ground by a gunshot hit was nothing compared to the pain he had already undergone. Lot of contrast with the other. A year later, during a different game, he has a similar thought. I don't mean to make fun of you, cop, but I have cancer. What more misery could you possibly inflict onto me? John is forced to leave his workshop at the mannequin factory and go to the property that would become known as the nerve when Detective Tap survives the throat slash. To a gas station. My guess is that this is related to the Urban Renewal Initiative, the housing program he dropped out of before retiring as an engineer. There are apparently a number of similar residences dispersed throughout the city, but this one stands out for the elaborate system of tunnels and secret chambers that have been built beneath the ground. An old, run-down washroom that John had transformed into the ideal arena for the next tournament. Playing in the restroom. If Jigsaw's life is a jigsaw, then understanding him requires piecing together the numerous parts that make up his identity. You can use the same strategy to decipher a few of his games. Participants in the barn game were those who had wronged others but refused to take responsibility for their actions. Errors impressed each one for an admission. That was the only thing they had in common, otherwise, they were completely unrelated. In John's second game, the bathroom game of October 2004, he purposefully picked participants who were all related in some way and the glue that held it all together was the central theme. Angel of Mercy Hospital Oncologist Doctor Lawrence Gordon was his go-to medical professional. John's first subject for the game was a guy named Zepindel. Unfortunately for him, John kind of needed him to make the whole thing work, even though he was just an orderly at the hospital and cared for John a lot and treated him well. We never learn Jigsaw's motivations for testing Zep, but this is another case where we can look to canon supplements for hints. 
saw, Rebirth was a comic and later a motion comic that attempted to fill in some of John Kramer's past. While it's clear that this isn't canon because it contradicts events in the films, I still find its explanation of those discrepancies to be plausible and useful. Jigsaw chose to try Zep out. I'm going to play the clip, but please be aware that the voice acting isn't great. Zep's supposed to be the first voice you hear, but it's actually John Kramer narrating. Therefore, let's start the video. I guess the doctor was a great listener, huh? Heartless scum who stole everything from them. How about you explain that? They're all cheating on their wives, she said. Not when I'm a doctor, that's for sure. The orderly was dealing with personal problems. My own life was ebbing away, so I began to focus more on the lives of those around me. It would appear that Zepp's major defect was his tendency to spread rumors. If he refuses to help Jigsaw with the game, he poisons him and injects him with the poison himself. The antidote, if you will. It's likely that Zepp kidnapped Dr. Gordon, and Amanda's mission was to find out what happened. Stan Height Adam. Detective Tapp suspected Gordon of being Jigsaw, so he recruited photographer Adam to keep an eye on him. However, John had already performed a ritual honoring Amanda's rebirth before she snatched him. John's apparent attempt to transform his standard operating procedure, MO, into a holy rite. Experience. In a candlelit room, he once again dons the black and crimson robes and effectively asks her to make vows of loyalty to him. The score from Saw 3 used in this sequence is titled Baptism, and if you listen closely, you can hear a choral chant in the background. Creating the atmosphere of a church choir. Listen to Baptism by Charlie Clouser. He abandons Amanda and goes to finish preparing in the bathroom. She comes in with an unconscious Adam, and he has to stop midway through his glam and gore tutorial. Looking on as he prepares for his most elaborate game yet by pouring a bucket of fake blood on the ground and giving her instructions on what to do with Adam. You can count on me to grab the controls as soon as you say, it's time to start our game. I'm not going to play your game, Tap said. CZ, voiceover 08. Forgive me if I misunderstood. John gives himself a serum to reduce his blood pressure, calm his nerves, and sleep better. His muscles and make him less obvious while he lies on the floor of the middle of the bathroom pretending to be dead while Amanda steals all the other supplies. Locks the door behind Lawrence, Adam, and John, who is holding a rifle in one hand and a recording recorder in the other, and turns off the lights. It looks like he's also concealing a tiny remote in his hand, like Jose Altuve's, with the capacity to zap Adam or Lawrence. Lawrence's objective was to eliminate Adam before time ran out, whereas Adam's was only to avoid capture. Because he spent so much time spying on others and so little time analyzing his own life, he was put to the test. Adam and Gordon, who are supposed to be at each other's throats in this game, instead strive to work together discreetly in order to escape without realizing that the man in the middle of the room is still alive and listening to everything as well as the man who was ultimately responsible for their confinement. Then, they concoct a scheme to make it appear as though Lawrence poisoned Adam to death. However, John overhears everything they say and shocks Adam to prove to Zepp that he isn't dead, so their plan to deceive Zepp backfires. When Lawrence had given up hope, 
Jigsaw pings him later. This I took to mean he was making one final effort to rekindle Gordon's enthusiasm, get him to stop feeling sorry for himself, and spark a rage that would drive him to study hard for his exam. The solution seems to be effective. Yes, okay, play the clip just once more. Shrieking hysterically. And that will never get old. In a last-ditch effort to save his family, Gordon pretends to shoot Adam with the gun again after chopping off his own foot to free himself from the shackle. The fact that John doesn't give Adam another electric shock to confirm his death fascinates me. It's possible he has no idea what's going on. When he heard Lawrence and Adam whispering the first time, he knew to be wary. Each other without light. But on the second try, while his back is turned to the camera, I'm very sure that doctor. Gordon merely offers Adam a wink. Since John can't open his eyes, Lawrence's convincing performance makes him believe this is another true encounter. I anticipate that some readers will find it hard to believe that someone as bright as John could have fallen for such a ruse, and I'd love to hear your explanations if you happen to agree with them. Just shock Adam like this and tell me if the comments say anything. Just doctor. Gordon makes it out of the game alive, and just barely. So there's only Adam and John in the bathroom, and Adam thinks John's dead. This then transpires. This is not the introduction to a commercial for a mattress, I swear. And if you do see a commercial for a mattress, I assure you it is purely coincidental. Building C, Nerve Gas Wing Jigsaw stands up and tells Adam that the key to his chain was down the drain of the bathroom sink, making it impossible to retrieve. Adam reaches down to pick up Zepp's gun off the ground in an attempt to use it against Jigsaw, but a final electric shock knocks it out of his hands. Jigsaw, game over. Adam, YouTube poop scream, John was safe for the time being, but he still had some work to do that night. In search of doctor. Gordon, he emerges from the stall. The doctor's cool demeanor under fire convinced him that he, too, could manage a similar circumstance. Be a reliable friend and ally, and after passing his trial, he'd be an ideal candidate to join his ranks as a disciple. As a result of the blood loss, he catches up to him just as he's about to pass out. John congratulates him on his survival and sprays water in his face. He assists in the healing process, fitting him with a prosthetic foot and recruiting him as his next partner. John would give Dr. Gordon preferential treatment compared to his other pupils. He had a sneaking suspicion that Mark and Amanda were having marital issues of having nefarious plans to hurt rather than help those caught in their traps. He was concerned that his legacy, his name, Jigsaw, would be exploited after his death. Doctor. Gordon instituted a control mechanism. Gordon's participation was kept a secret from the other trainees so that he might use it later. Tool to protect his legacy from oblivion. To be clear, Nelson was still in Iraq with the American Armed Forces, so John was in charge. Doubted his return or dependability at this point. Over the course of the next year, Jigsaw will continue setting smaller traps as a means of testing the populace. He thinks they've lost sight of what's important in life. There is a woman named Joan who made it out of her trap but didn't want to join the. For whatever reason, people are following Jigsaw. 
However, she develops a deeper gratitude for her life and shares her experience with the media. As counterintuitive as it may sound, that pure horror of absolute horror gave me light. A man called Bobby Dagan hears the broadcast and is moved by her change and, more importantly, her marketability. If Bobby were wise, he would contact her and offer to ghostwrite a book on her experience in Jigsaw in exchange for a share of the earnings. Compose a novel in which he plays the role of a victim of Jigsaw. John has a problem with this for the same reasons he has with Hoffman's impersonation. Encounters him during a book event, falling into one of his traps. In ancient Egypt, it was customary to preface sworn statements with the phrase, if I may. Take me to the stone quarries, I lied. What does that mean to you? Now that they've met, John doesn't need the cover featuring Bobby's face, so he takes it off after getting his copy autographed. My guess is that John is subtly telling Bobby that he is the true jigsaw through this action. Bobby isn't expected to understand this immediately, but this is basically what he's saying. That he is so perceptive that he can recall Bobby's face after only a brief encounter, and that he is subtly suggesting that the two may cross paths again. However, one of Jigsaw's followers would be tasked with putting Bobby Dagon through his paces in the event that they never cross paths again. John's subsequent elaborate game plan would be more involved than ever before. Like the bathroom game, he intended to set up shop in two different areas for this one. Place himself smack dab in the middle of one of them to speed things up. He also made sure Amanda was in the thick of things over there by putting her right in the middle of everything. That everything was done properly. The big game happened in or around October of 2005. The first half of Jigsaw's game takes place at the aforementioned Nerve Gas House and features a slew of crooks with ties to a single police officer named Matt Eric. John had persuaded a scam artist named Obi Tate to assist him abduct the other seven participants. Then, as the eighth and last competitor, John called in Hoffman to sedate and bring in Obi. Once the final touches were made to the game's magnum eyehole trap, we had completed the nerve gas house. Each participant inhaled a lethal nerve gas and had to complete several challenges while doing so. A trap they set to capture an antidote. Each of them was a genuine criminal who had been falsely accused of a separate crime. Save for one, by Eric Matthews. Eric Matthews's son was named Daniel. He, too, was a criminal, but one who committed considerably less serious offenses. They had to figure out their connections to Matthews as part of the game. Amanda designed the game's second act. Therefore, Amanda was in John's half of the game, and John was in Amanda's. The second part took place in a defunct steel mill called Wilson Steel, where John has been doing much of his work for the past year. Amanda, perhaps with John's assistance, had installed cameras to record what had happened. Have been going on in the nerve gas house for some time. For Detective Matthews, this was the game's biggest draw. When he realized his son was in danger, he had to act accordingly. And to rub salt in the wound, he even re-recorded Daniel's voicemail greeting. To which Jigsaw replied, You have reached Daniel's phone, he is not in at the moment. But if you dash that truly makes me wonder a lot of things. Did he, for example, re-record each victim's voicemail? And if so, 
Why wasn't it an extra feature on the collector's edition DVDs of both films? In a movie? Advertisement Disc Jigsaw, Hello, you've reached the phone of Zach Morris, who is now unavailable since he disagrees with my assessment of Saw 7. Daniel is safely hidden away at Jigsaw's headquarters after Amanda helps him get through John's side of the game in the Nerve Gas House. John, however, lays a second trap to entice Detective Matthews into his first, this one holds information on where Jigsaw's workshop is hidden. For the first time in recorded history, Jigsaw would seek the aid of his secret asset, Dr. Lawrence Gordon, in one of his traps. This time, Michael Marks, a former patient of the Homeward Bound Clinic turned police informant, was the victim. Because Michael spent all his time spying on people as an informant, Jigsaw felt he was no longer deserving of the life he had been granted. John mimics Michael Marks's methods of finding wrongdoing victims, proving that Jigsaw has gone even farther into the rabbit hole. The number of persons John is keeping an eye on makes him just as culpable as any of the doers he is monitoring. But his line of thinking circles back to his god complex, leading him to think that he is excused from the rule but others, or society as a whole, are not. Michael wakes up with a Venus flytrap around his neck, if he can't find the key, which Gordon has concealed, the device will close and impale his face. Behind his right eye Jigsaw tells him to stop using it and instead focus within. John takes a jigsaw piece out of Michael after he flunks the test and leaves a note saying that Michael is someone he can spy on. For Detective Matthews, suggesting he take a deeper look. I also can't help but wonder if the fact that he spelled Matthews' last name wrong was a red flag warning him to pay closer attention. Cancer had severely messed with his head, and upon closer inspection, Matthews would learn that the deceased was one of his confidential sources. And that the steel used to make the trap came from Wilson's steel plant, a place John knew Matthews would recognize because it had been involved in a case they had worked with on before. Matthews brings the team in time to see Jigsaw enjoying his cocoa puffs on a Sunday morning. Those cocoa puffs had me going nuts. What a cocoa puff fanatic I am. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to picture John Kramer being so crazy. Seeing this elderly cancer patient completely lose it and start bouncing around with joy after he gets a taste of. Matthews pokes fun at Jigsaw by knowing his name and remarking, the Coco, the SWAT team has arrived and has handcuffed Jigsaw. Adam, um. Yeah. Matthews tells his guys to book Jigsaw, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the session, John is on to them takes charge by declaring he must remain stationary while police locate the surveillance equipment and John verifies that the child seen on the displays is, in fact, his. Is certainly Daniel Matthews's son, his expression shows how Matthews's psychosis manifests itself in his face. Have progressed to the point where they require frequent stimulation to maintain a state of. John initially thought he was helping society by carrying out harsh sentences for those he deemed to have strayed from the right path. He put them through hell with his traps, and eventually his brain connected helping others with this horrible act. Since inflicting pain on others appeals to him, he begins to enjoy his crimes. It's your son Daniel, you remember him, don't you? I know who you are, you piece of. What is he doing on that ING monitor? Well, I haven't looked at the monitors in a while, so it would be hard for me to say. 
to say, but based on the look on his face, I suppose he's hiding in a corner somewhere. He says, you mother asterisk 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 or where is he, and then proceeds to detail the horrors that Daniel endured with an even wider grin on his face. Might be experiencing, he is roughly two hours before the gas starts to break down his neurological system. Tissue, and he starts to bleed profusely from every Orpheus. There must be a Paul Thomas Anderson joke here, but I can't think of one. Oh yes, there will be blood. Okay, I guess that's been on screen long enough, it is what it is, so I'm simply going to insert this funny, if not irrelevant meme. John tells Matthews that he can reunite with his son if he waits until the game is over to talk to him, rather than engaging in underhanded policing tactics such. I bet you thought I was going to yell brutality when I said evidence tampering. Jigsaw seeks to talk to Matthews, and Matthews grudgingly agrees to sit down with him. Bring him to his senses and let him see how far he has wandered from his original goal of helping others. Maintains his composure and does his best to help Matthews win the game, all while revealing some of Jigsaw's motivations for constructing the prison. And strive to make a difference in the world. He shows why Darwin's theory of evolution is irrelevant in the 21st century. Because we live in a world where it's possible to get by without being particularly tough or motivated, John sees his people as not having appreciated their life to the fullest. The investigator then walks away before he can give Matthews the same insight he had because of his past with illness and the lost child. Eric finally resorts to destroying John's plans, which, as John points out, is not the best way to win him over to the Church of Jigsaw, but it's the closest John will get to converting him. Appropriate action for a police officer whose job it is to gather evidence, but John wants Eric to succeed so badly that he gives him a second opportunity. When Matthews sees a criminal heading toward his son on the screen, he loses it and resorts to his usual strategy, brutality. John's finger is broken, the walkie-talkie is destroyed, a sign that he would no longer be following protocol, and John's gun is shoved into his mouth as he is threatened with more violence. Says something threatening to him, and by that time John has had enough. He knows that Matthews has gone too far. Game over, for him. He has perfected his skill. After Detective Eric Matthews violently retaliated against Jigsaw, the former sawed off his hand, the latter gave up, and the latter decided it was time to bring the latter to the residence where the nerve gas was being stored. It was all part of his plan, or technically Amanda's plan, but gas game had been held. Though it's hard to believe that John didn't have a major role in it, since his greatest weapon isn't his physical strength like so many other horror movie bad guys. We've seen him put his tremendous expertise of engineering to good use, and now we know that his mastery of the human mind is just as formidable. I'd argue that John was a genius at game theory, which is a term that seems almost absurdly apt for what he did. Hello, Internet, and welcome to Game Theory. I was just wondering, after doing some reading, what would happen if Shaggy from Scooby-Doo was actually a game theorist? An inebriated individual throughout? Haha, <laughs> no, that's insulting, I'm not a stoner, don't do drugs, otherwise you might wake up with a reverse bear trap. But I just found out that the name of the popular web series Game Theory comes from a real thing called Game Theory. The study of how people in games would choose to strategize in various situations is called Game Theory, 
and I fully intend to keep pronouncing it that way. Game theory is a branch of mathematics pioneered by John von Neumann who sought to formalize the study of strategic decision-making. John Kramer used some of those ideas to improve his poker skills and to make his games flexible enough to appeal to the most. He has considered most or all of the outcomes of each decision that players could make, but he still uses the acronym GAME to indicate that he is not 100% sure. Use theory to prioritize your time and resources on the most likely possible outcomes. Sure, there's more to it than that, but we don't study arithmetic in the horror history school, so I'll keep my explanation short. John's familiarity with game theory allowed him to avoid Cecil, ensure that Zepp would show up to the bathroom on demand, and give him peace of mind. Putting his life on the line at Wilson Steele, knowing full well that Matthews will do what is in his best interest if he loses. John takes advantage of the fact that Matthews was acting independently from the rest of his squad by intimidating him and compelling him to reveal instructions to the nerve gas house. The police tech team follows the video signal to another house, where the pre-recorded videos are being presented, to his benefit while he is with John at the real nerve gas house. From remember how I speculated that John's urban renewal project included multiple houses? When John and Matthews arrive at the real house, John is clinging to life by a thread, thus I suppose the fake-out nerve gas house is just another one of these places. Thread, then hands them a key without saying anything about how this key will seal Eric Matthews's fate. The game is ended now that you are trapped and defenseless. Amanda tried to abandon Eric Matthews and move on, but Jigsaw saw potential in him and saved him, as seen by the song Forget to Remember by Mudvayne, which is my favorite. In the individual, and maybe recognizing that he was close to making an impact on his life, he decided to give him another shot. He rescued Matthews and locked him up for six months, during which time John came to terms with the fact that his life was on borrowed time. He is well aware that his time is running out, but he still has many people he wants to punish and, more crucially, several of his disciples, out of a total of ten, to choose. His legacy would live on after his death thanks to the efforts of Amanda Young, Mark Hoffman, and Lawrence Gordon. Amanda was supposed to play a game with John on his deathbed, while Hoffman was to face a challenge after John's death. It is unclear from the films if Gordon was put through a final test, or if his involvement in the setup of the previous traps counts. He hoped that if he passed his final test, his ex-wife would see that he had changed for the better and come back to him. Ways had saved Amanda when Jill's clinic's conventional medical treatment had failed. I brought proof that it works. Jill, Amanda? Hello, Jill. Amanda, hello, Jill. However, Jigsaw has many more traps and games in store for you. He leaves a cassette to his ex-wife Jill in his will, ordering her to play a game that will help keep Jigsaw's power in check after he's gone. John was not only subjected to Hoffman's last examination but also those of five other members of William Easton's Umbrella Health, the insurance company that had previously barred him from pursuing medical treatment. The cancer patient who leaves behind a locked box containing information about experimental treatments for his disease. Moreover, he pre-records tapes that will play during games and traps for other people, and he doesn't give up the key easily. Such as Detective Carey, a habitual offender named Troy, SWAT Officer Rig, a mysterious man named Trevor, 
John's former business partner Art Blank, another pair of unknown origin, and a third unknown set of unknown origin. Trevor and Art Blank have backup tapes in case they don't make it through the first one, a pimp named Brenda, a wicked motel manager named Ivan, Rex and Morgan, Art's violent parents, and a psychotic psychopath named Art. Lindsay Perez, an FBI agent, Peter Strom, another FBI agent, five citizens involved in the building fire controversy, a dishonest moneylender named Simone, and two dishonest fire investigators. Eddie, the moneylender, Pamela Jenkins, the sensationalist journalist, the love triangle of Brad, Dina, and Ryan, and the four rap metal lovers. The racists would win, and Bobby Dagan, who had pretended to be a jigsaw victim before, would actually end up being one. Keep in mind that Jigsaw didn't prejudge the results of any games, so he presumably had multiple tapes of each player to account for every conceivable conclusion. On top of everything else, he left Jill with a set of instructions to pass on to Dr. Gordon. Keep an eye on Jill, and please take swift action on my behalf if anything were to happen to her. I promise to tell you everything from now on. That's a lot of recording time, so I hope Johnny the recorder remembered to charge extra batteries. Happening with Jigsaw. But nowhere like as much recording as I've done for this video. Before we get to the end game of John's life, I think it's only right that I take a short break. The Jeff Denlon trial slash Amanda's last challenge. John almost certainly knew that the April 2006 games would be his last. John had planned two games for that day, but the one with Rig, Blank, Matthews, and Hoffman had already been scrapped. Carried out primarily by Hoffman, while the other game was designed by John and would be guided by John and would feature Lynn Denlon, Jeff Denlon, Amanda Young, and John. The game's plot was supposed to center on Jeff Denlon going through a series of ordeals to forgive the persons responsible for the car crash that killed his kid. The point of the game was for him to survive until the finish and face Amanda, who was ostensibly his captor. Jeff's self-control would be put to the test when he had to decide whether or not to kill Amanda at the end, and Amanda's would be put to the test when she had to make sure she didn't sabotage their efforts. Jigsaw suspected Amanda's involvement in Jeff's trial was motivated only by her desire to punish her victims, as she had done with some of her other victims in the past and was not interested in seeing them achieve the same level of reputed success and rehabilitation as she had. John may have begun to lose faith in his methods after witnessing Amanda ruin her recent traps in order to make them unwinnable. His entire enterprise was predicated on the premise that Amanda was the pioneer of rehabilitation and the shining example of the transformation that adversity can bring about in a person. Revitalize his life and start over with Amanda, the one person he felt understood him the most. Be rather disheartened if, after two years of training, she were to fail her last test today. To make matters worse, she appeared to be building a rivalry with the other known perspective. Candidate to carry on John's work, Detective Hoffman, John was also training Hoffman, and he did the best he could with the time they had together. Jigsaw had to educate Hoffman how to walk the line between respecting and ending the lives of the test subjects he had seized. Punishment for their wrongdoings, the date of these contests was April 28, 2006. John's ex-wife unexpectedly turns up at the meatpacking plant to try to convince him to quit before the real fun can begin. 
Instead of hearing her out, he hands her the key to the box in his will and assures her that she will be prepared for whatever comes her way. Now that his final game is set to begin, and his aides have gone to gather the players, Dr. John believes he has done everything he can and begs Amanda to escort him to his deathbed. Lynn Denlon and Jeff Denlon's grieving father, who Hoffman had just finished capturing and delivering to the courthouse for the commencement of his trial. After Amanda and Lynn reconciled, Hoffman met with John privately to discuss his fears that Amanda was letting her feelings get the best of her. John honors Hoffman's integrity for his previous work by providing him with a shield that Amanda cannot breach. Lax, anonymity the police and FBI would have known Amanda was working with Jigsaw because she was a known accomplice. Into the open when they noticed her escorting Daniel Matthews, who had been stashed away in Jigsaw's workshop after escaping the nerve gas house. The FBI had a hunch that there was a second conspirator, but they couldn't be sure it was Hoffman. John's decision to conceal Hoffman's involvement demonstrated that he was more than eager to keep this information to himself. Trust in Hoffman over Amanda, and in exchange for protecting his privacy, he asks Hoffman to complete a final assignment. And hands him a folder with information on a future game designed to pit Ashley Cuzon, Charles Salomon, and themselves against one another. A tragic fire was started and covered up by Britt Stevenson, Scott Malick, and Luba Gibbs. Jigsaw gives over the file Hoffman, what's this? Jigsaw. It's time to play a game. Those would be the last words John said to his longest tenured student, who quietly left the classroom. Seconds later, Amanda and Lynn Denlon walked through a back door and into the chamber where Daniel Riggs final trial would take place, beginning their own game. John says, hello, Dr. Denlon, and then goes on to explain that he was once her patient and holds her responsible for the clinical manner in which she informed him of his impending death. After leaving her husband and ignoring their children, he says she is dead inside, but when John says his second most used phrase from his list of 10 top phrases. When he says, what do I want? A game, he's looking at Amanda to show that he considers this to be her test just as much as it is Dr. Denlin's, and it would be her last chance to show that she can put her need for vengeance and bloodthirstiness aside and enjoy a fair game. Of course, none of Jigsaw's games are actually fair, but you get the idea. When John explains the rules, he merely says that he is observing her ability to keep someone alive as a test. It might mean that Amanda is responsible for keeping Lynn alive and Lynn is responsible for keeping John alive. If John dies, the shotgun collar on Lynn will go off, killing her, if Lynn dies, Jeff will burst through the door when his trial is over and exact his vengeance. At first sight, on Amanda, the game's central question is whether or not a grieving father can forgive those responsible for his son's untimely death. Will Amanda be able to forgive the victims who, like her, had made mistakes in life? Will Lynn Denlon be able to forgive the man who kidnapped her family? Trying to prolong his life as much as possible each of these persons was a crucial piece of Jigsaw's Jigsaw, and they would all eventually have to work together. All come together in the end is another indication of his assurance in their eventual success. Dr. Denlon would begin his treatment of John as Amanda monitored Jeff's progress in his understanding of game theory. 
John watches helplessly as Amanda loses her temper and yells at the doctor because she thinks his brain is herniating and wants to rush him to the hospital. Telling her she must carry out the procedure here, despite the fact that Jigsaw would normally get out of the way of anything that could compromise the outcome of his games, but he loses his temper with Amanda here because she seems to be the only one who has successfully overcome her addictions. John urgently wanted Elizabeth to do well on her test so that he could go to his grave believing that his treatment had been successful. Although John was absolutely crazy at this point, he believed that he had been aiding his test subjects the whole time. Even more measurable indicators of his declining sanity would emerge shortly after he aided nobody but himself. But it wasn't only his sanity that was slipping, in a few short minutes, he'd have a potentially fatal episode of myoclonus. John must have been well aware of his impending death since he collapsed into a coma soon after introducing Lynn Denlon to the mix. Doctor Denlon and Amanda worked together to restore blood flow to his brain, saving his life after he had fallen into a critical condition. Although severely weakened, John persisted in his efforts to leave a lasting legacy. Even if he was completely bonkers, I have to respect his dedication to his craft, just as you should respect my dedication to convincing you to buy this merchandise by clicking the link in the Jigsaw probably recorded the tape for Detective Hoffman to locate after his death when Lynn and Amanda were bickering in the next room. Since he couldn't be sure that Hoffman was the only one who overheard, he had to be very vague so as not to give away their secret collaboration. If you hear this, Detective, you are likely the only person left. Maybe now you'll be the one to succeed where everyone else has failed. You think you can get away without being put to the test? While Lynn was getting ready for the next surgery, Amanda came in to let John know that Jeff had made it through the first room of his trial. John then placed the video next to his bed. John informed Amanda that Hoffman had hidden an envelope in his desk, but we are never told what was contained within. Amanda some words of encouragement, but Hoffman changed the meaning. If you're interested, you may learn more about this in the film Hoffman and Amanda, A Horror History. Episodes he steps in to try to steer Amanda back on track when he notices she's becoming emotionally overwhelmed. To which Jigsaw said, Amanda. You can. You've become stronger, and this is just more evidence of his irrational desire to establish the efficacy of his treatment. Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, some people with psychosis may have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. It appears that John has reached the end stage of self-image and extreme cockiness, and he refuses to admit that he was wrong about anything. Something, especially after spending the last three years torturing his test subjects with these games in an attempt to prove that they were lacking. Amanda observes as Jeff finishes the next room and reports back to John who is taken aback by the news that he has set traps to aid in their search for the treasure. At his current rate of development, but what happens next will have a much greater impact on the game's conclusion. John gets a haircut, which is good timing because I really need one before Lynn performs brain surgery on me. One pandemic later, if only you knew. In theory, this would relieve John's headaches and boost his motor skills by keeping his brain from pressing against the inside of his skull. John had to be awake and aware when Dr. Denlon drilled into his skull and sliced open a window using this method, but numbing medications were an option. 
Little Saw Blade, get it? Saw's the name of the movie series. Ha, ha. Ha. The process brings back fond memories of a picnic he went on as a kid. I'm confident that he has a film of his wedding to Jill sitting at home on a shelf with all his other home movies. John tries to tell his wife I love you during the hallucination, but saying those words causes the delusion to end and he is forced to return to reality. To make it appear as though he's confessing his love for Lynn Denlon, provoking intense jealousy in Amanda and prompting her to leave in a huff. Get out of here, you idiotic beast, he said. Doctor. Denlin's efforts buy John some more time, and it appears that she is truly beginning to adjust her attitude, for instance, she now puts her phone down when she talks to John. Wedding ring back on to imply that witnessing John's quest for additional time had made her value her marriage more. Amanda comes in and begins kissing him while remaining in jealous girlfriend mode, a dangerous mental disorder I described at length in her own horror history episode. Amanda's anger erupted once more, and she threatened to kill Lynn after Lynn told her that John was unconscious and unable to hear her. Jigsaw steps in again to reprimand her, but wait a second, John, didn't you just… asleep? So you're telling me you suddenly woke up and was perfectly aware of everything that was happening? And you weren't just pretending to be asleep when Amanda was all over you, you were out cold the whole two seconds this went down. Meanwhile, Jeff makes his way through the trial and eventually reaches the courtroom where he will face John Kramer. Gets the chance to rescue his son's murderer from John's favorite trap, the rack. The fact that John has a preferred method of torture demonstrates that he has become emotionally and psychologically dependent on the high he receives from inflicting pain on others. About healing people, the trap's double function as a contemporary crucifix supports his developing sense of divinity. Of his doctrines as a faith. When John returns to the operating room and asks Lynn about her husband, she begins to. He wants her to feel angry and reclaim her life, so he encourages her to defend her marriage against him. Amanda walks in at that very moment, sparking even more envious wrath, and she begs him to let her go free. John tells her to leave, saying, We're fine, Amanda. We don't need you. Jigsaw's decision to do anything to anger Amanda seems a little counterproductive. Like this when he wants her to succeed, perhaps because he anticipated that she would need to go through some mental anguish to get through the test. Must show that she can cope with her feelings when he's gone, but I doubt he was in the right headspace to give his victims proper exams. He may have felt he was about to have a breakthrough with Lynn and didn't want Amanda to be there to spoil it. He could have two grateful patients if he treated Lynn, if you make it through this, you're going to thank me one day, just as Amanda did. Did, as he continued his conversation with Lynn, he anticipated Amanda's announcement. That Jeff had made it through the last chamber and was on his way to the operating room, this raised concerns that he could try to exact revenge on his captor. Since John and Amanda's safety were both in jeopardy, he decided to put a layer of tape over the recording he had made for Detective Hoffman. Ingested candle wax with the intent of having it discovered by medical examiners and reported to Detective Hoffman. While some terminally ill patients are given their favorite dish, John is given an audio tape coated in wax. That being the case, the less we eat, the more is less fats we get at ourselves. 
Soon after, Lynn had kept John alive long enough to pass her exam, and Jeff had finished his final test, so Amanda entered the room to break the news. To release her, but Amanda has other ideas, I said no. John Kramer's untimely demise. Like the barn game, the bathroom game, and the nerve gas house game before it, the Jeff Denlon trials will conclude after all of the relevant players in the case have been identified. Put to the test, and unlike in the bathroom game, they're all in the same room together. Amanda's anger and envy have gotten the better of her again, and despite Lynn having passed her test, Amanda is holding her captive. John warns Amanda that Lynn's life is valuable because she determines the fate of Amanda's situation, but he is unable to tell what will happen if Amanda murders Lynn. Amanda's anger only grows as John tries to explain his actions by bringing up the people Amanda killed and how he had to clean up her mess and forgive her. Her, but how he won't let her keep killing. Amanda counters that Lynn was not capable of rehabilitation because no one they tested ever changed there. Jeff witnesses Amanda's transformation as she murders Lynn Denlon, and he responds in kind by shooting and killing the woman. Now that Lynn is dead on the floor, Jigsaw must put Jeff to the ultimate test by teaching him the lesson of forgiveness. Jeff had displayed forgiving tendencies throughout his ordeal, but he was powerless to prevent the crash that killed his son. Now we must choose whether to kill the man who caused so much pain for Jigsaw and his wife, or to save his life in exchange for Jigsaw's freedom. After much thought, Jeff decides to take the risk in order to save Lynn's life. I forgive you, John says, but even in the face of death, he can't help but grin as Jeff cranks up the circular saw. One of his most tortured test subjects would be the one to die by his own hand, and I doubt the irony was missed on him. Who would turn the tables on him, and with the same kind of instrument, a saw with a circular blade, that caused him so much pain? Onto his victims in the very first segment of his debut at the barn. This reminds me of the baseball game I mentioned before, in which Aroldis Chapman blew a save. Home run that won the ALCS for his team, and all he can do is smile weirdly because he knew that Altuve's decision to wait for an off-speed ball was no fluke. John rolls Jeff's tape with his last breath, Hello, Jeff. I made this cassette as an insurance policy, if you will. If you are still listening to this, it means you failed the last and most important forgiveness test I gave you. There is a price to be paid now that we know where Jeff's other child, Corbett, is locked up. By eliminating Jigsaw, Jeff had effectively sealed his daughter's grave. John is aware of the sight. John could not have justified the ensnaring of a child in order to exact revenge on Jeff, even if he had survived. John's heart rate monitor stops working on April 28, 2006, and that night he, feared by an entire city as Jigsaw, is dead, setting off Lynn's collar and locking Jeff in the operating room for an indefinite period of time. John knew he had failed for years, but he persisted in his techniques anyhow. The autopsy on John's body would take place in early May, and they would discover the cocoa puffs and the tape left for Detective Hoffman in John's stomach. Who would keep playing Jigsaw until March of 2007? John was laid to rest in a nearby cemetery, where his grave would stay until 2016. When his first student, Logan Nelson, buried him upside down and buried Edgar Munson in his place. 
Although this film has provided us with many of the pieces of the puzzle necessary to determine Kramer's last resting place, that location remains a mystery. John Kramer's life was a game in the same manner that he played games with his victims. Jigsaw, a symbol composed of these fragments, was created by a man who, after experiencing unimaginable pain, gave himself the authority to pass judgment on the lives of others. Caused him to become a psychopath on par with the most notorious serial killers because he became addicted to seeing other people hurt. In all of literature, he achieved a god complex and elevated his work from a collection of murders to a religion complete with dogma, rituals, and adherence. Even though he said he was giving all of his subjects a second opportunity, he ended up ruining the lives of more than 50 people. He got where he did because of two things he did exceptionally well and both of those were absolutely above board. First, he had a degree in engineering, making him a mechanical genius whose traps could be evaded only in the methods he had planned. The second was that he could predict how people would think. He was a game theory expert who considered every possible outcome before beginning any endeavor. Had been considered and solved, leaving us with a nearly complete puzzle. Because no matter how hard he tried, John could never outsmart or outperform the people he put to the test, Jigsaw was incomplete. If you like Saw, you can read my thoughts on the other characters in the franchise in the playlist on the left. I'll see you in the next one and horror fans should sign up for Chsworld's weekly updates on terrifying content and notifications by sounding the death bell. That is, if we get it out alive. Before we go, I want to express my gratitude to each and every one of you for tuning in and being a part of our podcast community. Your support means the world to us. If you want to support this channel even more and help us create more amazing content, you have the option to contribute by sending a donation. Every contribution goes a long way in helping us improve and bring you even more captivating episodes. Remember, your support is what keeps us going and allows us to continue exploring fascinating topics, interviewing intriguing guests, and delivering valuable insights. So, if you're interested in supporting us, you can find the donation link in the description below. Even the smallest contribution can make a big difference. Once again, Thank you for being a part of our podcast journey. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on the notification bell, so you never miss an episode. Thank you for watching, and until next time, stay curious, stay engaged, and keep exploring the world beyond the code.